Well, good morning. My name is Casey Cease. I have the joy of serving as the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Christ Community Church. And one of the things I, I love about our church family, with, uh, which are many, but one of the things I love is that we come gathered and expectant to open God's word together, mindful of our need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and committed to making disciples of Jesus Christ in authentic community. That's something that I believe the God, that God has called us to in this community, in this area, so that we might reach people who are far from God, that they might meet with God and be transformed by the power of God through his son, Jesus Christ, and filled with his spirit. And so this morning, as we wrap up Mark chapter 13, I want to draw your attention to a few things in this passage. A lot of times uh, you hear the leaders on stage or on our Facebook group or in our emails or across the table urge you to open the Bible and to read the Bible and to take your own growth in spiritual things, um, take responsibility for those things. And I think it's easy for those of us who are urging you that way to forget to explain why at times. Why is it important for you to grow in your faith? Why is it important for you to not get lazy or complacent in your journey? And so this is a great opportunity this morning to remind us of that. Why do the leaders of the church want us to be so involved and engaged and all that? Listen, we're not trying to put together another spiritual country club out here. We're not trying just to get nickels and noses. That's what they talk about in church world, like how many folks are at your church? What's your budget? We don't care about that here. What we care about here is an opportunity for you to come face-to-face with the living God, to connect with other people who are longing for the same things, and to have opportunities to be in community with those people so that we can then join in what God is doing week in and week out as he is on mission, seeking and save those are, who are his. And this, this passage is a wonderful reminder as we enter into the holiday season what Christ um, is calling us to beyond just um, hanging around and being good people. The, the aim of the gospel isn't just to make you behave better. I want you to understand that. You hear me talk about that quite a bit. But the aim of the gospel isn't just to modify our behavior. The aim of the gospel is to take those who are far from God because of sin, which all of us fall into that category, and adopt us in and make us acceptable to God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so as we come with that understanding, going into Mark chapter 13, I want us to realize that as as Mark is recording the words of Jesus, telling of future things, there are some specific historical things that are accurate and true, and there's some future things that we are waiting for ourselves. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, there's a few uh, laid about as well. I encourage you to open with me to Mark chapter 13. I want to back up just a little bit to get a running start into the passage that we're going to be in today. Our focus today is going to be Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. But I want to pick up in verse 24 as Jesus is talking about the coming of the Son of Man. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes under tender, becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near and that the very, at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
And I thought Brent did a wonderful job last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and either listen to the audio or watch the video. He gave a historical account of some of these words coming into fulfillment in A.D. 70, where the destruction of the temple came to be, and that was a pronounced historical judgment on the ways of Judaism because since that time, since A.D. 70 of the destruction of the temple, they have not yet, they have not had an opportunity to fully, once again, engage in sacrifices that they're called to engage in. And so there was a clear moment of judgment on the temple era. The beginning of Mark chapter 13 spoke of the temple. The, the destruction of the temple in the AD 70 was definitely a mark of judgment against the way of Judaism because Christ Jesus didn't come for the Gentiles first. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that Jesus came first for the Jewish person and then for the Gentile person. That promise was made back through Abraham where God made a promise with himself for Abraham and blessed Abraham saying, you will become a blessing to all nations. And so in Mark chapter 13, we do see Jesus talking to that generation, to his disciples. But the end of the story doesn't end in AD 70. There's a continuation of that story. And we'll dig into that a little bit today. When he gives the example once again of the fig tree, which he has given before in this passage, he's giving a warning of the timing and what to do when that time comes. However, we now get to this verse that I think is extremely important, not only for his disciples then, but also for his disciples now. Pick up with me in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Just take a moment and give you a brief Bible study methods lesson. One thing you do when reading a passage is find things that repeat. Keep awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. And he's not just talking about pastor's sermon. I was teasing the band earlier saying, hey, the theme this morning is stay awake. You better. But it's more this idea of urgency and remaining focused on the things that we are meant to stay focused on. The main point I want to make today is this. The return of Jesus is not a question of if. It is a reality of when. It's not a question of if Jesus will come back and bring judgment. In Revelation, it's very clear that there will be a final judgment of this earth and this life. That there might be a micro-judgment of when we die and stand before God or when God chooses to send his son to return. There will be a final judgment of the living and of the dead. It's not a question of whether Jesus will return. It's when he will. That's the question. But here's the reality. Jesus doesn't come and give great things. He even says here, he says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. In 1988, a gentleman published a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. He came out with another book the next year. True story. You can look it up. Guess what it was called? 89 reasons, no lie, can't make this stuff up, 89 reasons why Jesus will return in 1989. We love, love, love fantasizing about the return of Christ. And quite honestly, I think sometimes depressed Christians focus on the return too much. 
because they're longing for this to end. But when we're focusing on and longing for this to end and keeping a watch out on that, we're missing the entire point of what Jesus called his own disciples to and what he calls his current disciples to. And so I intend to unpack that for you right now. Jesus even says, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus is first pointing to the fact that as Jesus was on earth, he was functionally subordinated. You'll love that term. Any of you theological geeks, I know there's like three of you here today, functional subordination is a great way to understand how the Trinity functions in uh, the person's roles in the, in the Trinity. And when Jesus was in human form, there was limitations that he took on, not claiming to his rights as God, but becoming human so that he might enter into the narrative, into history, so that he might become the perfect sacrifice for humanity. And as he was here and he was talking to his disciples, he says, I don't even know the day or the time. And so when you hear of people talking about the end is near, the end is coming, look out, oh, see what's happening over in Saudi Arabia, see what's happening in Iran, see I told you, right, see what's going on. I'm not sure what Brexit does to the one world order. But when they're so focused on the imminent return, trying to guess when God's coming back, even Jesus was focusing on that, that's not really my business. What you need to know is that Jesus will return. But it's not your business about when he will return. If you've been around here a while, you hear me talking about God's business and our business. And those businesses are very different. The mysteries of God, the full knowledge of God, the power of God are God's business. That's why in issues like Calvinism or Arminianism, of premillennial predestination or premillennial pre-tribulation or post-mill, ah-mill or pan-mill, it'll pan out in the end, whatever position, those are mysteries to be explored, but not things to divide. Because we're trying to know what God has revealed through his Bible, through the world around us, through the testimony of other believers, but ultimately there are things that only God knows and God's okay to know, and there's things that we can know about God. So fortunately, God has revealed himself to us throughout history, through the law and the prophets, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through the life of the apostles, through his scriptures, he's made himself known to us. And just because we don't know the date or time doesn't mean we dismiss the reality that Christ will come back. But there's, there are things that Christ has commanded and commissioned for us to be focused on. I think many of us live with deferred gratification when it comes to God, meaning that we'll enjoy God later, but he's not meant to be enjoyed now. We treat God like retirement rather than a present blessing. And so one of the reasons that we don't cultivate our spiritual disciplines of scripture and reading and prayer and fasting and finding joy and worship through our serving and the joy of sacrificially and generously giving financially. Part of the reason we don't have that is because we treasure Christ a little, but we'll treasure him more later. And with this idea in mind, we treat Christ like some sort of long-term life insurance plan, a retirement plan, when really he is a limitless, infinite, powerful Savior meant to be engaged with and enjoyed today. And with that understanding, we begin to understand that selfishness and other sin, beyond just being offensive to God, is robbing us from the enjoyment of God. 
And as we seek to lean into the person of God and obey the works of God and follow the person of Jesus, we begin to understand that there is joy to be had that transcends our circumstances meant to be experienced beginning today. But those experiences won't be fully amplified and won't be fully realized until Christ comes and restores all things and makes all things new. Many of us think about retirement planning or the way we think about it is we don't think about it and hope for the best. Most of the folks I know here, they are very focused on investments, saving for kids' college, retirement planning, focusing on the future, working for the future, and all of that consumption now and saving for later is fine until it becomes our main focus. When that becomes our main focus and our main goal, we miss out on the ultimate enjoyment that we were meant to have beginning with our relationship with Jesus Christ. The satisfaction we were created and intended and redeemed to have in Christ. So the first thing I want to draw from this passage this morning is this. Eschatology informs ecclesiology and missiology. Yep. I'm not sure what those ologies mean, but they sound good. I'm going to unpack them for us. Look, I know some of us are new to the faith or maybe haven't been around church. We've been around church a long time and we try to avoid words like this. But I want to help them come alive. As many of you know, I, I've, um, I have ADHD and dyslexia. And when I was 22 years old, I relearned how to read um, for comprehension. And I could focus. And one of the greatest resources I learned in reading is this great book called The Dictionary. What does that word mean? If that word isn't coming to life, I'm missing out on something. And I fell in love with learning through reading the New Living Translation of the Bible, which is written at a fifth grade level. I still love the New Living Translation. Sometimes if I'm getting too heady or too wrapped up, I transfer, transfer over the New Living Translation and I just start enjoying, again, the story narrative of God's redemptive story through Scripture. But, but words are important. Words matter. Vocabulary enhances our enjoyment. Eschatology literally talks about the theology or belief of final events. Not just the end of the world, that's part of it but also death, things of destruction, and the end of the world. Eschatology is focusing on those things. And if we don't have a biblical and accurate view of end things, of life and of death, then it's going to affect how we view eschatology, which is the theology of the nature and practice of the church. And so if we don't have the end things in mind, then we're going to, we're going to lose the why of what we're doing here, and therefore it's going to trump or not help compel us towards why, why we need to be on mission. And so as we look at the instructions of Jesus in this passage, as he tells his current disciples, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come, we need to understand that focusing on in things shouldn't be our obsession, but should be our motivation for why we gather as God's people and why we then go out and share the gospel with other people. People die. People die daily. They die unexpectedly. A young man was killed yesterday riding a bike on 1488, heading to work. So in that moment, we do need to be ready for We do not know when the day or time comes for us to be at the end of this life. That's where urgency first comes in for the purpose of evangelism. That means the sharing of good news. 
that all mankind has sinned against God, has offended God with their sin, has rebelled against God, but God, through his only son, Jesus Christ, lived a life that we can never live, died a death that we deserve, on a cross, was dead and buried, and by God's power was raised from the dead three days later. After 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, awaiting God the Father's command for him to come back to judge the living and the dead once and for all. If you've not heard that or have never placed your hope or trust in that, today is a day for you to believe, to trust, because we don't know the day or time for ourselves, and we don't know the day or time when Christ is sent back to bring judgment. And then Jesus gives this illustration that his culture understood. Verse 34, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. The doorkeeper is kind of like a doorman um, in the apartments, like in, in New York or some fancy apartment that has a doorman, a kind of a security person that, that allows people in and out. But he doesn't just give command to the doorkeeper. He says, hey, all you servants in this place, keep watch. Keep doing what you were commanded and called to do. Obedience shouldn't be contingent on the presence of the master. Obedience should be contingent on the commands, the words, the instruction of the master, and we live into those things because we trust him and believe who he is and believe what he is going to accomplish. And so when we say eschatology informs ecclesiology, we're saying that the understanding of death and destruction and the end of the world informs why we gather as a church, the importance of it. Therefore, we understand the theology of the church, the nature and structure of the church, that matters. The way the church is structured, as it's been laid out in the scriptures, is important of why we do what we do as a church. It's important to have qualified biblical elders. It's important to have qualified biblical deacons and deaconesses. It's important to have church governance and structure and care. It's important to be a church on mission. It's important and imperative to be a multiplying church, meaning a church that plants more churches that plants more churches. It's important to be an evangelistic church that calls people to become right with God through Jesus Christ. The way we do church, the gathering in community groups, isn't just for your own soul care to make you better about you. The purpose of community groups is to get with other people straining towards the same goal, being encouraged in our faith, maturing in our faith, that we might eventually, by God's grace, one day become missionaries together. And going and seeking those who are far from God and helping them get reconnected with God through Jesus. That's the aim. So the end things that we will all face death, there will be destruction, there will be an end of the world. Whether while riding a bike on 1488 or 50 years from now, we will all meet an end. Whether some of us are alive when Jesus physically and literally returns or we meet our death in hospice care. That end in mind motivates the why for now. That motivates the why in children's ministry, why it's important to have a full-time children's director, why it's important to have believers who are in there investing in the lives of these kids and telling them about Jesus and modeling Jesus and, and, and infusing hope in these children that the world around us is crazy, but Christ is faithful. That's why we call you to generously give financially. The 10% of the Old Testament tithe has become the floor as Christ rose from the dead. It is the foundation and the basis of where we begin that we begin to give generously because 100% of all that we have belongs to God. 
And because 100% belongs to God, all of it is his. And so we say, God, whatever we have is yours, and we want to put it in action and put it into play for the sake of your kingdom because we have the end in mind. Eschatology, the final things, death, destruction, and the end of the world, that informs our ecclesiology, why we do church, how we do church, the nature and structure of the church, and our missiology, the methods and purpose of our mission. The end things compel us towards the next things. And if we forget the why behind it, if we forget the promises of God that he has been 100% faithful to keep, historically, then we can become disgruntled, we can feel detached, we can feel undervalued, we can lose mission and vision, we can become resentful. Verse 35, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Not just the first round of disciples and apostles, but to all who call Jesus king, stay awake. As we think and look forward to the return of Christ, I think many of us, the primary issue is we just don't trust him. I remember John and I were recently at a Houston Church Planning Network meeting where uh, Steve Timmis, who is a pastor in the UK and also the CEO of Acts 29, was sharing, and he said, one of the main threads and themes throughout the whole of Scripture is God crying out to his creation, trust me, trust me. To his people in the desert, trust me. To Adam and Eve in the garden, trust me. To you and to me, he's saying, trust me. He's calling us. He's inviting us to trust him. So the second thing we can see from here is the key to Christian faith is trusting Jesus. It's not making yourself right, getting better, pulling yourself together so I can go to God. It's coming to Christ saying, you're my only hope. Jesus, you're all in everything I need. You're my only hope to be forgiven from God. You're my only hope to be made right. You're my only hope to have joy and hope again. You're my only hope now and my hope in the future. Jesus, you're my only hope. And this scripture isn't on the screen, so you can write it down. Hebrews 11.1. 1. The writer of Hebrews defines faith this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This trust in Christ the trust in his life being good enough to God, being perfect before God, the trust in his death, the sacrifice of his death being sufficient to pay for our sin, the power of Christ's resurrection with witnesses that have seen him, the power of Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father, a God that is not dead, the promise of Jesus that he will come, not only judge and destroy the temple, but eventually come and destroy it all, and judge and destroy it all so that you can make things new. That's why when we tell, talk to people at church, we don't say, hey, you need to accept Christ. We believe Christ is acceptable. What we say to you, you need to trust him. 
Not in yourself, not in your works, not in your ability. Jesus isn't your trading wheels hoping to make you good enough so you can ride on your own. He is the very vehicle that brings you grace and salvation. He is the one that can save you from your sin. He is the one that can restore your soul. He is the one that makes old things, dead things, broken things, brand new. That's our Savior. That's a Jesus that we can trust. We're not selling you a God that never entered into time and space at some sort of uh, mindless goop up in, he- up in the heavens. We're, we're talking about a Savior that entered into time and space with authority, with power, with evidence of his power. So the key to Christian faith is trusting Jesus, which leads us to the next thing. God has historically kept his word. The destruction of the temple in AD 70 is another historical point where we see God bringing judgment that he had promised to bring, yet bringing mercy that there wasn't total annihilation of the entire world at that point. The laws and the prophets are historical evidences of God paving the way, casting this vision, making these promises that he will send a Messiah, a messenger, a savior that will redeem the heavens and the earth and make all things new. So from the Garden of Eden to the promises made to Abraham to the deliverance of God's people from Egypt to the promised Messiah, Jesus, we see God historically throughout the scriptures through creation and through the fall and through his redemption has always been keeping his word. It's difficult to trust someone who continuously doesn't keep their word. It's very difficult, yet many of us long to do that for people we know and that we trust and that we love. We want to believe in other people. But let me tell you something. No matter who you trust and who you love, none of them are 100% perfect, and they will at times let you down. Even the most godly person is not perfect. And so if you want to start experiencing a little bit greater happiness and joy then perhaps we need to stop primarily putting our hope in people or organizations and place our hope and trust in the person and work of Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't need each other. It doesn't mean we don't need community. But what it does mean is our ultimate hope of joy is found in Christ. I've shared this before, but it's worth sharing again at this point. I was talking pastoral frustrations with a good friend of mine who's a pastor as well several years ago, and I said, One of the most frustrating things is people come to you for wisdom, you share that wisdom, and they go do opposite. I said, so how do you keep from like just being angry all the time? He said, well, here's how I view it. I view it that people come and seek wisdom, and I share the best I can from the scriptures and from my experience, and I expect them to go do opposite of what I say. And if they actually follow the wisdom of scripture and do what I say, I count it as a miracle of God. A couple of things happen. One, we believe that God is the only one that can change a person's heart and mind. And two, it alleviates some of the pressure of pastors because we have a bad habit of trying to become messianic figures, trying to save you. I can't save you, but I sure know who can. So for many of us Christians, we're tour guides, we're midwives, we're pointing people to the way, to the source, to the hope that we have in King Jesus for forgiveness of our sins. So the key to Christian faith is trusting Jesus. God has historically kept his word. And lastly, we are called to help others prepare. Remember earlier I was talking about God's business and in our business? The disciples were very curious about, 
okay, but seriously, Jesus, when's this going down? When's this going to happen? They still had this mindset that they were going to ascend in power once again. And so we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, after Jesus was killed, after he was resurrected, before he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, um, they come together again in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) They won't drop it. In Mark 13, he says, I don't know the date or time. I don't know when this is going to happen. That's not really what you need to focus on. He says, Lord, we at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not your business. You've ever had a curious kid? I have a very curious kid who is just like me, very curious. But she's way smarter, and so she catches on way easier than I did at her age. All of a sudden, we're talking about something. She's like, what? Who? How? When? How? What? And she actually has like wise things to say about like speaking into the situation, but partly because she's a believer at this age. You ever had that curious kid? Okay, now, Abigail, when we're driving to my in-laws who live an hour away, we tell her it's going to be an hour. We're in the car 15 minutes. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I mean, we're bribing her with books, with iPad, all sorts of things. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? The, the, the apostles, like the guys who are going to carry the torch. So Jesus, is now the time? Is now the time? Okay, not yet. How about now? No? Okay, you rose from the dead. How about now? No. And so Jesus is telling, look, it's not for you to know. That's not your business. That's not what you need to be consumed with. He gives them this command. But... You will, look at this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we see that they can trust Jesus and we see that God has historically kept his word by getting to Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit of God comes upon them and Peter steps up and starts preaching the gospel of God. And many people are saved. Had they not walked in obedience to God, had God not empowered them by his Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be gathered here today still proclaiming the longing of our hearts and souls for the reunification with Jesus Christ himself. But he has given us a task that is placed upon his church that has continued on generation after generation after generation. And last spring when Intentional Churches came, a consulting group to help us think through, okay, what's next for Christ Community Church? How do we continue to manage and steward and lead all that God has entrusted to us? They had asked us, how passionate are we about the one? And the one they're talking about is from Luke chapter 15, where Jesus gives a parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the prodigal son. And I was deeply convicted because when I planted Christ Community Church and throughout several times of the season of being here, nearly seven years since we launched services in April will be seven years, I've longed and desired to see people who are far from God reconnected with God through Jesus Christ. Having been saved at the age of 17, knowing what it's like, knowing how messy I was and how messy it is, I've longed to see people born again and brought in, not just converted by decision, 
but transformed through discipleship. And as they're discipled and transformed and are, are challenged to grow in Christ, we would see lives change, families restored, addictions broken, marriages thriving. And part of being watchful, part of being mindful is understanding there is an end to us all. And that end matters. And Christ will keep the promises that they have made, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, through his word. God will keep his promises. There will be judgment of the living and of the dead. There will be those who spend eternity separated from God and an eternity in hell. And there will be those who, of no working or deserving factors in their lives, will be adopted and saved by God through Jesus Christ. And for whatever mysterious reason, God has commissioned his disciples then and his people now to be those messengers. He's commissioned his church to be the mobilization of that good news, to be a reflection of that good news, to be the mouthpiece of this gospel story. This sermon is not meant to bring guilt for your lack of zeal for evangelism, but to call us to remember that we must be mindful and ever awake because our king will return, that life is not eternal on this side of his glory, but that there will be judgment. There will be an end. And we have the truth. It's not true because we believe it's true. We believe it's true because it is. And we live in view of that truth, and we lean into that promise that as we await the future coming of our King Jesus, that's why we gather in hope. That's why we gather at times in grief. That's why we can come and share our fears and share our doubts, because God is faithful even when we're faithless, because he cannot deny himself. It's in 2 Timothy 2. We serve a faithful God, a powerful God, a God that will keep his promises. It's not a question of if Jesus is going to return, the question is when? And until that time, what are we to do? God is not a benefit to be experienced later. He is a God to know and enjoy now. And as we know and enjoy him now, there will be overflow opportunities for us to speak of the gospel in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our community groups, and in the world around us. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is a declaration of our need. And I urge you, church, let's be a people that stay awake. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come with gra gratitude in our hearts and hope. Father, I pray for any man, woman, or child that is here this morning that has yet to place their faith and trust in Jesus. Father, that you would help them to realize their need for forgiveness, that they would become very aware of their sin against a perfect and holy God. Father, even as I'm sharing this, I'm aware of my own sin that leads to deeper need of appreciation and, and value and treasure of you. For God, as we value you more, sin becomes less appealing. And Father, our faith is never meant to be lived in isolation, but in community together as your church. And Father, as we learn and focus about 
the things that you have called us to, to love you with all that we are, to make disciples as we go. I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us courage and boldness, that you would entice us to want to learn more of what it looks like to talk about the gospel, to learn how to articulate the gospel, learn how to live out the gospel, that we understand when we come in this place and our crews come early in the morning to set up and tear down, we're not doing that just to put on a show, we're doing that to prepare an environment for people to meet with Jesus when the men and women of this church go and they sacrifice and give up a Sunday to serve back in the children's ministry, that they're doing so to create an environment for our children to hear and to meet with Jesus. When our groups gather throughout the week, that they do so with that end in mind, knowing that we need to be ever ready, ever present, ever awake, that pursuing Christ is not something we wait to do later, but a priority to be pursued now. And Father, we admit we're not yet there, but we ask that you would help us, that you would grow us, that you would mature us, that you would spur us on towards love and good deeds, and all the more as we see the day coming of your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.